Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 438, Scaling New Heights with Sasha DeJulia. Big Chillians, welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always by Eddie. Eddie, how's it going? Yeah, it's good. No weather updates today. I'll keep my keep my intro short. Great, awesome. Well, I guess uh, welcome for those joining us for our interview with Sasha DeJulian. Awesome interview. Uh, so if you're coming for the interview, I think you'll be pleasantly entertained. And if you're not coming for the interview, I suggest you stay and listen because even if you're not an avid rock climber <laughs> i think you'll like it <laughs> no, maybe not this what an interesting interview pleasantly interested i hope so um well i think yeah, if, no absolutely I, I, I think if you're i think if you are someone who really follows rock climbing that you might think two people who really know very little about rock climbing what are they going to ask her and what are they going to learn from this interview hey, i went to some kids birthday parties i've i've, yes. I've scaled a few walls <laughs> in my time i guess you just missed the uh that point a to b that she had <laughs> Yes. Yeah, no, there were a few missing steps, yeah. but I think I got point A to B and then she went all the way to Z and that was that's the difference between us. But no, a really fascinating interview, really interesting person to have the chance to speak to. And I mean, not only rock climbing, starting a business, activism, writing a book, just a whole range, writing a book. I mean, yeah, just a whole range of topics. So really, it is an interview where there is something for everybody. And I know people like to say that a lot of the times when they have podcasts or interviews or whatever it is but in this instance it is an hour where we, i can guarantee there will be a topic that comes up that interests you but it's also worth saying because i know the other thing you hate doing frank if you are new to the podcast please do make sure to subscribe eventually saying, give us a are rating. you saying i hate Spotify. to subscribe to podcasts is that what you're saying <laughs> you, you hate <laughs> you hate to ask our audience for favors uh, <laughs> so yeah Please make sure to subscribe, follow the Big Chill Podcast on Instagram, on Twitter, look for us on YouTube. Worth doing just because we'll put out some clips from all of our different interviews, some video clips so you get to see people and, you know, adds faces to the voices and a little bit more, can be a little bit more of an interesting way sometimes to digest some of the content. So, you know, please do uh, follow there and leave us a rating or whatever it is you can do on there and, and, and recommend it to a friend. I know that's the best way to spread the word when it comes to podcasts. So do pass it on and, and help us to continue to grow. And now I've done our little bit of weekly begging. We can we can move on to the pre-interview topics. I just watched that Amazon Prime movie about the Thai children that got trapped in the in the cave. Thirteen days. Some some I think it's thirteen days, I think is the name because that's how long they were there for. Or thirteen lives. No, because there's thirteen of them. It's 13 lives. There's 13 of them, yeah. and they were there for 13 days? Holy crap, who didn't see this coming? No. <laughs> um, they shouldn't have even tried till day 12. I will actually say, I went into it with very low expectations. Pretty good movie. And again, it's one of those things where you know what the ending is, so they're trying to build some kind of suspense and like a cliffhanger at moment in moments where you know that they're going to save the kids. So if you're familiar with the story, that's a little bit harder to do, but still actually pretty good. There was lots of it I did not know. I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of what happened. I had no idea that they drugged 
the children to get them out of there. Like chemically drugged or they drug the children, like drag them out. <laughs> they anesthetized oh, the wow. kids. They were totally unconscious for the time that they, the, the like several hours they had to accompany them on the dive out. So they had, they, they injected them with ketamine and then at multiple times, like every 30 minutes had to stop and re-inject them with ketamine to keep them unconscious. And then, and I think it took six hours to get them all the way out. It makes sense because otherwise how on, they would have just panicked. But I, in following the story when it happened live, I felt like there was absolutely no mention of this fact. So they saved their lives, but now they're addicted to Special K. Yeah, Great. it's a, it's an op, it's an opioid crisis in Thailand now. But imagine, <laughs> they lived. I, I mean, imagine the 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 mind space you must be in, because I I, I don't know the story, so I don't yeah. I, I don't want you to spoil everything. But it, what I'm picturing is they're trapped, they get drugged, and next thing they know, they're no longer trapped in like a completely different spot. Like that must be a little bit of a mind blown scenario there. Well, it's, it's, it's not too far off. They like don't tell them they're drugging them because they don't want them to panic. So they know they're getting an injection, but they don't know what it is. And then so they're just talking to a guy, getting injected. It's just B12, un- don't worry. Unconscious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> unconscious. And next thing you know, out of the cave. And also what do you That's throw crazy. in then, right? That with with ketamine, not that I'm advocating that people use it, but that gives you quite intense dreams during that period, right? I mean, that must be one hell of a trip to just try and work out whether or not what you then experienced in your head was anything close to reality, or in this instance might be one of the few times where whatever was going on inside your head on <laughs> ketamine was, was like less crazy. crazy than what your body was actually going through in real life. Yeah. Don't do drugs kids. Let's make sure the big chill podcast is a, is a clean podcast. I will watch it now. I mean, it's a, it's a good cast, right? Colin Farrell, Viggo Mortensen, uh, Edgerton, what's his name? Joel, Joel Edgerton. Joel Edgerton. He's only, yeah, he's not in it. Yeah, but I didn't know anyone who was in it going into it. So I was kind of like pleasantly, it's like when you watch a movie and then you're like, oh, them, oh, him. Oh, yeah. Then yeah. And that was actually, I think that was the perfect way for me to consume it because I went in with low expectations, not knowing the cast, and then was continually pleasantly surprised by how good the cast itself was. But yeah, it's, it's, it's worth watching. So. I'll, tr- I'll bring us right into the world of sports, and I'll bring up – I've got two topics you're going to love, Frank. And by love, I mean absolutely hate. Uh, if by love, do you mean live? Because if it's the live golf tour, Eddie, I'm, we're just, I'm just going to do a hard pass. One of them is live-related. Oh, one of them is not. Which, which one would you like first? I mean, I think at this point, we can't talk anymore Live Golf until we're officially sponsored. There is no podcast out there that's talking more about the Live Golf Tour than us. Well, our issue is we don't say anything positive. So I so maybe we're a PGA get... Tour podcast bashing yeah. the Live Golf Tour. We're PGA stands. There's no way to deny it. We're full on. We would have... Just... I'm surprised Russian bots haven't started attacking us on Twitter yet. But <laughs> I will say that's a crazy world. If you just go and look into the conversations that are going on on the online, on Twitter, when it comes to the Live Golf Tour, the number of bots that are just weighing in, just full support for the Live Golf Tour. Unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, but just to quickly wrap up our latest Live Golf Tour, 
tournament coverage. Just worth saying, I guess. I don't know if you saw Patrick Reed's uh, lawsuit. Yes, he's suing for quite a large sum of money. $750 million. Yeah, not a bad for, sum. So, so, <laughs> yeah. For the Golf Channel and That'll do. the PGA Tour. <laughs> yeah. And and Commissioner Jay Monahan as well is also named in the lawsuit. So it's three suing three different parties with the argument for the $750 million being that uh, they have been tar- they have been purposely omitting pertinent key materials, facts to mislead the public and actively targeting Mr. Reed since he was 23 years old to destroy his reputation, create hate and a hostile work environment for him. Wow. So he's, ba- he's basically accusing the golf channel of bullying him for since he's been, tw- since he's 23 years old, how many years has that been? He's younger than you think he is. If you see what I mean, like when he doesn't you look, look very him. young. He's no. got like the Rafa and Adal hit him. <laughs> but yeah, but he's but he's basically suing them for commenting on his career. This is the thing I don't get. It would be like someone suing the NFL Network because they've, you know, Fitzpatrick going out and throwing three interceptions, and then he sues the NFL Network because they say he doesn't have a very good game. Like I don't really understand it. And it's worth noting. I don't think we had to dedicate too much time to this lawsuit, but the lawyer that he has chosen to represent him. A uh, little bit of an interesting Chris character. Chris Furlong. <laughs> <laughs> they might share some some beliefs. Our, but no, our, our, our super avid listeners will love that joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a deep cut for the Big Chill listeners. But um, no, Clayman. I actually don't know his first name. But one of the things he's famous no, for was, uh, pe- was uh, he submitted a petition to deport President Barack Obama based on a belief that he was not born on U.S. soil. So, you know, when you're getting that lawyer involved in your case that you've, you've really got, you're building, you're building something strong. He also, Clayman once sued his own mother. So he's a, he's a great character representing a great character. So, I mean, I guess, I mean, I guess my only issue is the only way Reed would have a kid, because I agree with you. I mean, there are analysts on television on sports channels that analyze the sport they're supposed to be analyzing, right? That's literally what they're doing. They're critiquing and analyzing. I guess where he would have a case is if they are unfairly kind of negatively critiquing him, making his achievements sound less than they are or not acknowledging him and and making him look like a bad character when in fact he's not, you know, like almost making up stories or, you know, he wins five times on the tour that year and they say you know oh he had a terrible year he didn't do anything or things like that where they're just blatantly wrong is the only way you could get around it i guess but it's still opinion right like you're able to share your opinion in terms of analysis and the other element to it too is you know patrick reed has brought a lot of controversy onto himself even before the live golf tour i mean he's famously been caught cheating on multiple occasions and by that i mean in In golf. golf okay yeah (laughs) <laughs> you know, like he's had. We, wait, we don't instances. want to get sued now. <laughs> no, as far I've as we got seven hundred and fifty million. <laughs> but we could use the coverage, Frank. <laughs> if if Patrick Reed wants to name us in the, in the next lawsuit, bring it on. But no, I mean it. It seems it seems a little bit silly. But the whole, as we've discussed before, the entire situation is getting a little bit tiresome. And on that note, we can we can move on, maybe to another legal situation, transition over to the the NFL. 
Uh, I think I know what you're speaking of here, of Deshaun Watson, eh? Indeed. With the NFL deciding that they would increase his punishment. So from a, what was it, a six-game suspension up to a, up to 11 game and also increasing yeah. a $5 million fine. Yeah. So it's better than it was. I still think fundamentally they needed to go for the full season in order to really have this come across as being any kind of serious punishment. I guess the only thing you could really say about this at this point, and you know, if you want to get our more detailed thoughts on this topic, we've discussed it in some previous episodes where we really go into it in length, but... I guess the one thing this probably guarantees is that the Cleveland Browns don't make the playoffs. And maybe that was the goal in choosing the 11 game suspension is the NFL kind of wanting to save face and avoid the PR disaster of having Deshaun Watson line up in a playoff game. As far as I'm concerned, that's the only thing that explains the length of punishment that they've chosen. It doesn't really seem to damage him in any way. And yet the only thing it does is just ensure that you don't have a January and February where the talking points are Deshaun Watson is the Cleveland Browns quarterback. Yeah, I I agree. I don't think it's enough, especially based off of the previous punishments that the NFL has given out. I definitely don't think it's enough. I really also hate the fact that his first game back is against the Texans. If there wasn't someone who didn't tell the NFL that that was going to happen, then the NFL needs to start firing people because – how you don't realize that is what's going to happen. And now it's going to be the biggest freaking circus in the planet. And he, to be honest, he doesn't even deserve to play against the Texans. Uh, I, I mean, that's, that's the other part that kind of angers me is like, if there's a team that he really shouldn't be playing against, it's the Texans. So I, 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 I don't know how they let that happen. I, that's a, that's a terrible look on the NFL. The other pretty bad look is that, I mean, I guess it's a bad look if you, don't believe him or not, but he is continuing to maintain his innocence instead of kind of just putting his head down and not saying anything. He is still coming out. Um, so he basically, I think today he said, I'll continue to stand on my innocence just because, you know, settlements and things like that happen doesn't mean that a person is guilty for anything. I feel like a person has an opportunity to stand on his innocence and prove that. And we prove that from a legal side and just going to continue to push forward as an individual, as a person. So one, they didn't really prove anything on a legal side. They didn't go to court. <laughs> like, no, so they didn't prove it. No, but he had grand. Well, no, he had grand juries. Um, and again, I don't want to come across as defending Deshaun Watson. Yeah, exactly. Because, but that means he won that. He, his argument would be: Look, if if there'd been a real case, this would have gone to trial. So, and again, I don't want to be. Dis, I don't want to be defending for Deshaun Watson. The, in any yeah, way. but I think that was a lot to do with what he was technically being charged for. Not that he didn't Maybe. do the things that he's been said to have done. Maybe, but I do think in terms of accurately discussing it, you can understand from his perspective how he would say in a court of law, he has proven himself innocent. Now, I think any rational person would think that with this amount of smoke, there has to be some degree of fire. And with this many people coming forward, you have to believe them. I mean, there's just no two ways around that for me. But yeah, and look, he's not going to come out. He's also, I guess, I suppose, look, he should just be keeping his mouth shut fundamentally. But again, not to defend him, but you will have his legal team saying, under no circumstances can you admit any wrongdoing. 
Because if you do that, that no, that's you still have I, some I people that. you've yet to settle with. But there's a difference between not saying you're guilty and continuing to stand on the soapbox and plead your innocence. And then also saying, I feel like this whole process, I've been trying to tell my side of the story, but a lot of people just didn't pay attention to it. I don't. What's what's his side of the story? No, I didn't. I, I didn't do that. Like, yeah. no, I didn't. I didn't get fifty-seven different masseuses in thirty days off of Instagram. No, that's completely normal. I mean, my my buddy Mike across the street does that every weekend. Like, no. What, what's what's your side him? of the why story? Mike, why are you throwing Mike under the bus? Well, Deshaun is not me. I was imitating him. <laughs> oh, sorry. I didn't realize you were in character at that point. Um. Yeah, I think this is the the real issue to have with this anyway. Even if you think he's totally innocent, even if you believe every word that comes out of his mouth, he's a total creep. You know what I mean? Like at best case scenario, he's a creep. That's not a good position to be in where like that's the absolutely best way to interpret your actions is you're just really creepy. As as we've said on, in, on previous podcasts, no one looks good out of this. The NFL doesn't look good. Deshaun Watson obviously doesn't look good. The Cleveland Browns really don't look good. Even the Texans don't look good. Like it, everyone involved in this story, aside from obviously the the masseuses, everyone else involved in this story has come out looking bad. So it's just a shame. But keeping on the topic of the NFL, the other thing that I knew would get you really worked up, I watched an interview with Dolphins head coach Mike McDaniel today. Okay, so far not triggering. During which the conversation okay. about Tua's skill set came up. Okay. And he said that Tua is the most accurate, th- sorry, Tua throws the most accurate and catchable ball I've ever seen. Wow. I, I mean, that I, it actually doesn't trigger me because I, I, I like Tua. I, I liked him at Alabama. I think he's a great player. In no way do I think he's the most accurate quarterback in the NFL. I mean, he's 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 a great playmaker, and he has no, no, no. he has a good Fine. arm. Not just the most accurate quarterback in the NFL, one of the most accurate quarterbacks of all time. Yeah, As Mike no. McDaniel said he's ever seen. Now he might be. I mean, did he not see last year? <laughs> like, was he, what, did he just get the? Did he just get the ability of sight this year? Like he played. Like he's played before, and it didn't look that great. <laughs> Now, part of his arguments for this fact were that, kind of bizarre, so Tua is naturally right-handed, but throws the ball left-handed. And part of his arguments were that he thinks as a result of this, that most left-handers, when they throw a football, it tends to tail off, the tip of the ball tends to tail off to the right as the ball's in flight. But Tua manages to keep the ball straight, like a right-hander would throw it. Now, I don't know how that's explained by the fact that he's naturally right-handed, I say this as someone who's naturally left-handed but can throw with both hands. I don't think it benefits my technique when throwing with my right hand that I'm naturally left-handed. But, yeah. I mean, look, he's an NFL quarterback. He's obviously incredibly accurate when yeah. it comes to throwing a football. Like, there's no doubting that bit. But it does seem like a little bit of hyperbole. And, look, that's his job. He's a head coach. He's supposed to big his players up. Well, he's. I guess he's not like Mike Vrabel, who when they asked – uh, about Malik Willis, how he how he played in his first game, and he was just like, ah, he's got a lot to learn. <laughs> like, 
and he actually had a really good game. He looked really good. He scored. He had, a, he had like a touchdown run. He had two or three really nice passes, and he was like, "Yeah, yeah." He was terrible on his reads. He was really slow out of it, and uh, you know, it didn't look that great. It's <laughs> like, wow, that's that's harsh. Um, I was actually quite surprised with with how kind of blatant he was. Just oh man, I was I felt bad, but. I mean, yeah, getting back to Tua, I, I do think Tua is a, a really good quarterback. I mean, he was phenomenal in Alabama, and so far in, in Miami, he hasn't been – like last year, he was pretty good. Uh, he had, you know, what, they were 7-5, and five, I think, when he was the starter or something like that. And his stats were pretty good. I mean, he had a good completion percentage. He had picks, though. I think he had, like, at least 10 picks. So it's not as if, you know, not as if every one of those was right into the receiver's hands and just popped up and went to the the defender. Most beautifully thrown interceptions you've ever seen. Maybe he was trying to throw the interception. Perfect spirals. Maybe that was it. A a, a lesser quarterback, it wouldn't have been picked off. The ball would have been too hard to catch. (laughs) Well, hey, I mean, if, if he is the most quarter, accurate quarterback, they're going to have a hell of a season because he's got a lot better team around him this year than he did last year. Yeah, and I guess, hey, that's a way to naturally plug the fact that in the next week or two, we'll be doing our full NFL preview. So I guess you'll find out about what we think when it comes to the Dolphins prospects and every other team in the NFL will be telling you who's going to make the playoffs, who's going to win the Super Bowl, who's going to underperform, who's going to overperform, and if history is anything to go by, we can occasionally be right. So I guess I should have brought this up, Eddie, before, because we were doing TV. This Sunday is the series premiere of Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon. Are you in? No. Oh, such a shame. I mean, I didn't I mean, watch the original I, Game of Thrones, so... I know, because it was popular. So why would you ever watch something else, something that everyone else <laughs> thinks is popular? That's so anti-Eddie, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I'm not into fantasy. And and I'll also say this. <laughs> then why do you dress up like Princess Leia every Halloween? <laughs> <laughs> That's not fantasy. But... And you love pirate movies. <laughs> That's not fantasy. That's real life. That's not fantasy at all. That's historical drama. You like Star Wars and you like pirate movies, but you're not into fantasy. I don't like Star Wars. I, I as a child, I liked Star Wars, and now as an adult, I you like. You made me watch Obi Wan, and I want those six hours back. I told you it was terrible. Son of a bitch! I did, not, <laughs> I did not say it was good, but here's my other issue. I might be convinced to watch the new Game of Thrones. But there's also the new Lord of the Rings TV show coming out. And not that I'm in at Two all. Two weeks after. Not that I'm really into Lord of the Rings, but I at least read the books when I was a kid. Kind of liked that world a little bit when I was younger. Okay. So if I have to choose between the two, I'm definitely going Lord of the Rings. And there is no way on earth I have enough time in my life for two oh. fantasy no, TV shows. No, you choose both. They could both be epic. I mean, what I do respect about House of Dragons is they waited until Lord of the Rings announced when they were going to premiere and then just pulled it back two weeks and that was their premiere date. It's such a it's I mean, it's it's such a great move because it's exactly what you're saying is there are a lot of people out there that will be like, I can't spend an hour or an hour and a half a week to watch both. I mean, to watch each, you know, like three hours a week. 
And then because House of Dragons is first, so we'll start watching that. And if that first episode is good, that might severely hamper Lord of the Rings success. Yeah, it's still Lord of the Rings, right? It's going to be huge. Game of Thrones is going to be huge. Lord of the Rings is going to be huge. Like they are just absolute guarantees for success. But no, I mean, I am firmly in the camp that I, I can probably only watch one of them. And look, I probably should watch Game of Thrones. It stars Matt Smith and he's a Blackburn Rovers supporter. Not many of them out there, so <laughs> I should probably be throwing my my support behind a, a fellow rover. But unfortunately, I think uh, Lord of the Rings is going to win out for me. Well, you know who else is supporting Game of Thrones? Papa John's. They're releasing a, a specialty pizza for the House of Dragons. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Is this, the, is this the kind of association that Game of Thrones really wants? Well, that he's long gone. <laughs> yeah, but still, I mean, yeah, it's it's, 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 it's a, a spicy. To... Let me tell you the pizza though, Eddie. It's a spicy concoction, hand tossed in Papa John's signature pizza sauce, topped with sriracha dry spice, smoked pulled chicken, Italian sausage, fresh green peppers, melted cheese, and Fresno chilies. With a final dusting of red chili and garlic crunch, um, I guess what they I get what they're going for, right? There's the Dragon Association, so they're going for yeah. something hot and spicy. I get it, but I mean, none of those ingredients speak of to me and make me think of Game of Thrones. Like, I don't know what the pizza of Game of Thrones would be, but I definitely don't want Italian sausage on it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's just that's that takes me right out of the fantasy world. Oh, do you want do you want it to be like in the fantasy? So you want it to be like Winterfell direwolf sausage, something like that, with gru- with some gruel <laughs> tossed on top, just yeah, a little bit of I don't know sheep's blood thrown in or something. I don't know, but but yeah, they could. I still think they could have done better in terms of representing maybe the food of Game of Thrones. Like if this pizza, if they'd eaten pizza in, in the Game of War Thrones universe, this is the pizza they would have eaten. Yeah. But it might not be very good. <laughs> well, I'll be watching it, Eddie. So if it is spectacular, I will force you to watch it so we can have little discussions on it at least. Can't wait. Although I also will watch the Lord of the Rings one as well. Well, on that note, should we turn things over to our interview? Yeah, let's do it. Hello and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. Uh, now, I'm very excited to introduce world-class climbing champion, Red Bull athlete, entrepreneur, and activist, Sasha DeJulian to the podcast. Welcome. Hey, guys. How's it going? Thanks so much for having me today. Good. It's great. Yeah, it's a, it's a real pleasure to have you on. You might be, in some respects, the most sort of diverse, in terms of your interests and activities, guest we have ever had on. So you can yeah. you can add that to your claim to fame, I guess. <laughs> I, I don't know about that, but I appreciate it. <laughs> kind of Yeah, so I I think a good starting point, right? Would we're you know a pretty general sports podcast, so we have people who who are listening that you know like certain sports over others. But I would say we're not a hardcore rock climbing podcast. So maybe if you could kind of start with your journey through the sport, you know, uh, kind of when you started, what piqued your interest, how you got kind of involved to getting to doing international competitions, and kind of how you went from competition climbing to more uh, kind of on your own expeditions and things like that. It'd be great. Yeah, sure. I started climbing uh, in about 1998. So when I was six years old, 
Yes, that ages me. Um, been climbing for coming up on 24 years. And my brother had a birthday party at a climbing gym when I was six and he was turning eight. Uh, we grew up in the Alexandria, Virginia regions, so like just outside of DC and not the not the capital of rock climbing like Boulder, Colorado is where I now live. But um, yeah, I fell in love with just the activity of climbing. Like as a young kid, I dabbled in a lot of sports. I figure skated competitively. I've been skiing since I was three. Um, you know, tried team sports like soccer and um, stuff like that. But I think that at the birthday party, it was just kind of a natural thing for me that I really enjoyed. And so I joined the local junior team program and started going to the gym like twice a week, Wednesdays and Saturdays, and literally stumbled upon a competition taking place on a Saturday morning. And that was when I was seven. Uh, I competed in the 11 and under category. It was a youth regional championship and I won my category, which was, um, you know, it sounds more epic than it was because at the time, you know, 20 years ago, uh, plus climbing was way less of the sport that it is today. So now like hundreds of, you know, competitors are competing in the youth circuit. Um, I wish I could say the same for them, but, um, anyways, that was how I, I literally stumbled upon competition climbing. And then, I competed for well over about a decade and a half. I kind of went through the ranks of junior national championship titles to um, junior world cups, junior world championships into the adult region, um, uh, into the adult division of competitions. And I actually could start competing in the adult division when I was 12 because there was no age limit back then. Um, It was kind of like, you know, climbing was a pretty free-for-all sport. And at 12, I came second at the adult nationals in Canada. Um, and I won my first like continental championship for youth when I was 11 in Mexico City. And so anyways, there's just like kind of like a, a cascade of competitions that I did quite well at. I won the world championships for the female overall when I was 18. So that was in 2011. And that was kind of a big turning point for me because I had taken the year to devote uh, in between high school and college to living in Europe and competing in the World Cup and World Championship circuit for rock climbing. And after um, this championship, which was in Arco, Italy, uh, I kind of switched gears and started doing more outdoor climbing and really fell in love with that and to the idea of like this limitless amount of possibility where I could go literally anywhere around the world. I had my first big wall climbing adventure the next year and was pretty hooked by like the all encompassing aspect of what outdoor climbing really represented. And so I switched gears in my early twenties from completely retiring from competition climbing to focus on big, like first ascents and first female ascents around the world, uh, on real rocks. Yeah. It's, it's, I have to say that's quite the the gap year you took. Most people take a gap year, go to Europe with a backpack and a hundred dollars for a week. You took a, a whole year and became a, a world champion. So that's quite an impressive gap year. Well, I, did, I did go to Europe with a backpack and probably a hundred dollars. So. But your end outcome, I guess, is a lot better than most others. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was a good ROI. Um, yeah. So then in the difference between the competition climbing and the expedition climbing, from a technique standpoint, how similar is that in terms of the challenges that it presents and maybe the skills that are necessary in order to be able to do that at a, at a kind of an elite level? Yeah, actually, indoor climbing has evolved quite a bit since my day of competing and now climbing is an Olympic sport, which is really exciting. And um, climbing in the Olympics was formatted very differently from any other competition that took place. It was emerging of these three categories of speed climbing, sport climbing and bouldering all together into a single medal category, which was really foreign to the world of competition climbing for the time. Um, but climbing gyms have really spiked the participation level of climbers around the world, because now you could literally be like in Kansas with a climbing gym and get really strong and then end up becoming a professional climber, you know, insert flat location, even DC for me, like I'm a pretty, um, it's a new age approach to start climbing in a gym, but there are some carryovers from indoor climbing to outdoor climbing. Um, I do a lot of my sports specific training in a controlled environment, which is on plastic. But as I prepare for, say, an expedition, which I actually have coming up and leaving on Monday, um, I do a lot of rock specific training as well because a lot of the like big endurance days and where you're, you know, exposed to the elements for long periods of time looking at like 12 plus hour days it's just kind of tough to replicate in a gym which is great about cross training is like you can really train the explosive power and the technical aspects of the sport but then the true practice of like being on rock is quite a bit different than how i would have trained and prepared for competition climbing um, so there's, there's definitely been like a divide in the sports too, where you see more people focusing on one discipline versus the other. Um, and if I were to like enter a competition tomorrow, I don't think it would go so hot because the formatting of competitions have really changed. Like I never really was much of a speed climber, for instance, outdoors, like there are speed elements where you can set speed records on the nose, for instance. Um, but most of what uh, what we focus on is doing like very, very challenging cliff faces that you're hanging on to like very minimal amounts of rock underneath your fingertips, like the size of a credit card protrusion, for instance, and leveraging your whole body off of that. So it's, it's very technique oriented. Um, and reading the rock, kind of like a skier would read their line down a mountain or a kayaker would read the water. You have to find your path uh, of least resistance, so to speak. Do you, you're talking about those tiny, tiny, you know, grabbing onto small elements of a rock face. Do you get scared? I'm going to guess the answer is no, because you probably couldn't do it if you did. But are there scary moments? Yeah, I get scared for sure. Uh, it's what I think it's what keeps like... Um, any adventure athlete alive is that balance of fear and mitigating risk and figuring out the safest way to do things with elements that are sometimes in your control and sometimes not in your control. Um, and even before expeditions, like I'm um, kind of, you know, in this packing up and the fray of things right now, 
uh, you do sometimes stop and think like everything's so comfortable when I'm at home. It's like I get this nice mattress to sleep on and can walk downstairs and make coffee. Like everything's such an effort when you're out on a big epic adventure that there's a tug and pull. It makes you appreciate the small things when you come back, but it is a bit of like an endeavor to go into. Um, and I, I think mentally, like I work with a sports psychologist and dealing with fear is definitely a thing I've, I've, we've lost friends in the community and tragic accidents do happen. Um, and so normally my approach is just to control what we can and figure out what risk is on the table. And then you make a plan ABC for what you can't control. So, so I think this is great that you're, you know, going to be going out and, and doing something new because it gives us the opportunity. I think a lot of times when people will watch a video of, you know, you or, or other people scaling something, they just see that 20, 30 minute video and they're in awe, but there's obviously so much in the background that went into that climb. So now, you know, you're saying you're going to be leaving Monday. So what, what's that process like? So kind of how have you been training before you're leaving? Are you training specific things because you know this and that about the climb that's happening or is it just more general? And then once you get there, what's the process in terms of kind of mapping it out? Are you practicing run? Are you doing practice runs? Are you going through it? Who are you with? Like, is it a team effort? How, how does that whole process take place? Yeah, sure. No, it's a easy question for me to answer because <laughs> I'm fresh off the deck on this one. Um, uh, normally the, everything gets planned. So from what we'll be eating, um, we'll be a total of seven people, me, my two climbing partners, and we're actually making a film about it. So we'll have a bit of a, a team in the field. And, uh, when we go in, it, it's pretty full committal. Um, we plan out what breakfast, lunch, and dinner looks like, and you have to pack that all in and know exactly what you're going to be eating for the next month. Um, so I'm really invested in nutrition and really love, um, yeah, I just launched a nutrition bar company, so I hope I know a thing or two about it, but you're, you're I really literally like invested. <laughs> yeah, I'm literally invested. Um, it's true. And we'll be bringing lots of my bars. Um, but a lot of it is like lining up what the meals look like, what all the gear that's needed to actually climb the route looks like. My process is normally quite visual. Like I like to lay everything out and uh, then put it into bags. And when we get, we're flying actually to Europe and we'll have two days of kind of repacking backpacks because normally you have like a little bit of a scale and, and you see, well, an actual scale and you see like what each bag weighs so that you can plan per person how much weight you're hiking in, which is normally around like 50 to 60 pounds because it's a four and a half hour trek in. Um, and that's everything from sleeping kit to we're going freeze dried meals. So for dinner, which is kind of daunting. I have fear about that too, of like eating freeze dried meals for a month. Um, but sometimes you just kind of realize like with so much weight that you're going to be carrying of everything else, um, you have to make decisions around like, do you want a camp stove? Do you set up like a base camp that's more luxurious or do you go a little bit lighter and, and, um, more just like full committal. Um, and so I normally bring like extra, we're bringing a couple extra ropes because we're aware that 
again, like with the rest, the the rock is sharp. So figuring out ways to keep fresh gear on hand for if anything happens to our rope, we'll be able to swap that out. Um, Knowing the right equipment, like everything comes down to your fingers and your toes when you're climbing and uh, you have your hands and then you wear climbing shoes. So knowing also like what uh, geology the rock is, this particular objective is limestone and it's pretty abrasive. And so knowing like, okay, it's going to be sharp stone. So we're going to need um, a climbing shoe that has a pretty stiff rand and kind of make decisions down to the very, very meticulous level. Um, Even down to like water calculation is normally about three liters of water per day per person. Um, But Western Europe is experiencing like extreme heat and uh, something that we were relying on for this for instance, was like snow Um, and all the snow is melted. So we're going to have to track in all of our water as well and and kind of make more exits from our base camp to refill water supply. There's definitely like adjustments that you have to make. Um, I know I'm kind of bouncing all over the place, but there's kind of a lot that you lay out and think about and I'm a bit of a um, type A personality that I like to be in front of it. So I've actually completed most of my packing already so that I like back to the fear element. I like to control everything that I can so that then I can have that mental space to step back and like actually fully mentally prepare for the task at hand and not be thinking like, okay, did I put enough carabiners in my bag? For instance, uh, I like to be in front of that. So it's uh it's not a thought that you have to worry about. It's like worry about the big things. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to just think about all the logistical work that goes into, you know, what ends up being what seems like such a, I'll say simple finished product, but in terms of <laughs> fundamentally, it doesn't look like you have that much with you, you know, when you see the videos of someone climbing. Oh, totally. I mean, then it gets like cut down to a 15, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead, of course. No, then it gets cut down to like a 15 second reel and you're like, well, that was was the expedition. Yeah. What's the balance like then kind of within the climbing community? You obviously, there's a commercial aspect, I guess, to the filmmaking side of things. And where's the balance there in terms of the rock climbing achievement itself versus trying to produce like a finished product that is then appealing to, I guess the goal is a wider audience. I guess in some respects, like free solo, maybe is the perfect example of that, of tapping into something that even non-climbers were fascinated by. But like, how do you, do you feel, I don't, I'm kind of trying to phrase this carefully, but like, do you almost feel like at times you're almost having to sell out from the perspective of taking on the biggest climbing challenge in order to, to deliver a commercial finished product? Or are those two areas, like, can you balance both of those sort of sides of the project? Yeah, I think that we live in a weird time because uh, there is so much content saturation and everyone has to be a content creator. So capturing really the essence of what you're doing in an epic way is pretty um, synonymous with being a a professional adventure athlete these days. Like um, often I have days where I go out climbing just on my own with friends. And it's almost like it didn't exist because no one was documenting it, which I think that there's just a really healthy balance you have to find. And sometimes it's, 
it's always a tug and pull because, um, like I love rock climbing for very intrinsic reasons. And then I also have extrinsic pressure as it relates to my career. Um, so something as a part of being a professional athlete and having this amazing like privilege to make what I do a living comes with capturing what I'm doing and going out with the film crew and for this specific objective, we're going after, um, a really difficult first female ascent objective. And so that's kind of like the story behind the lens is, is telling our story of the attempt. Um, but I, I think that, um, yeah, it, it, for me, it's been a learning, um, experience because I actually had my first sponsor when I was 12 years old. And, um, I kind of hit the wave of, my career starting to really explode at the time that social media started to explode. Like when I was about um, 18 or so, I remember I, Facebook even was pretty new and Instagram, like I signed up for maybe when I was 19 or 20. I remember I was like out on a climbing trip with uh, two good friends who happened to be like National Geographic photographers who were like, hey, you should get download this app called Instagram. It's really cool. And it was at the time when you had to like take the photo in the app. Um, and like you could make collages and all that. And I was like, ah, oh, I already have Facebook. Like what's the big deal. And then I downloaded Instagram and like, you know, um, fast forward even 10 years later from that, like athletes are able to significantly increase their ability to make income based off of social media related deals and like the way that you would get sponsored as a rock climber um at the beginning of my career was like you would do really well in a competition or do a really groundbreaking ascent of something outside and then you'd be written about in by a magazine or like a media outlet and then if you were lucky a sponsor would contact you about like maybe it'd be like trying out their product or something like that. It'd be some sort of exchange and you'd work your way from the very ground level up. Um, now I think that there's a little bit more of like a quantified metric system for sponsorship that even, um, you know, some of my sponsors that have been with for over 10 years, like Adidas and Red Bull, um, there are expectations of us being on social media, which is quite obvious because as professional athletes, we're an extension of what marketing is, but it's, uh, the landscapes definitely changed. And like, we have a, um, kind of a, a duty to also be sharing our story, which kind of, it comes, it comes quite naturally. Cause like, if you love what you're doing, I think that you do want to, um, share it with others, but having a camera always around is sometimes tough too. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a changing and, and, uh, media-centric environment that we do live in, even as athletes. So I, I guess kind of just piggybacking off of that, since now I guess a lot of the climbs you're doing, there's obviously going to be a camera crew around you. Do you feel any pressure sometimes when you're doing the climbs that, you know, like I have to push through, I have to do this because, you know, there's people filming me versus just kind of stepping back and saying like, it's not possible. I can't do it right now. And, and kind of not failing, but having to prolong it and, and kind of, you know, have everything's already there and set up and time and commitments and people and kind of just having to put things on hold. Yeah. I think that, um, 
my motivation to just climb something is probably stronger than caring about what the camera captures. Because as a team, you know, my team of climbers I'm going with, like, we all really want to do this climb. And uh, we, there's a certain level of what you have to let go of, of that you can't control it. And what's really interesting about rock climbing, which I'm sure for other sports relate to is we've been preparing for this objective for the last six months. And we, um, to go back to an earlier question, like there is a mix of indoor climbing, cross training, outdoor sports specific training, um, increased bigger days to prepare for what the level of intensity will be like while you're living in the mountains for a month. Um, but all of that is to say, like, if, if we didn't want it more than we wanted the cameras to capture it, then it would be a little bit of like a, um, a wash in the pan and we probably wouldn't be able to succeed anyways. So I think that the first step in actually achieving anything is like coming down to what you as the athlete actually want and, how you prepare for it, how you can show up. There is an element of like, we just don't know what the climb actually is like. You can prepare for all this time, but for this objective, there's very limited information that we even have. Um, So you go into a little bit of the unknown and you're like, well, I'm feeling good climbing. I'm feeling in shape and I'm feeling like the team's already and our motivation's there, but you could be shut down by like 10 feet on a, plus 2000 foot cliff face and not be able to figure out that sequence or physically like be trained enough to do it. And then that's what shuts you down till the next year or equally like weather can shut you down if you get just like really bad bouts of rain and stuff like that. So, um, I try not to let the cameras affect me. I think it's more of just, um, there, there is a little bit of pressure. Like you can understand that uh, all right, these people are probably gonna, you know, be trying to tell a story and you know, at the back of your head, well, the story is going to be really good if I accomplish the objective. But I think it's just like an added layer to the onion on top of already wanting it yourself. That makes sense. And again, I guess, you know, it's one of those things that for the mentality of a, an elite level athlete, it definitely makes a lot of sense. You've touched on there, the kind of the combination of the training approach to the training and and bringing in different elements from different styles of climbing. And you also alluded to the fact that the kind of the version of climbing that made the Olympics was taking drawing components from those different elements. Maybe you don't know this, you know, this might be something that in terms of how it was the version of climbing that then made the Olympics, was that decision taken by people involved in the organization of climbing itself? Was it a kind of compromise with the Olympics? And within the climbing community then, are you happy with the version of climbing that is then on display within the Olympic Games? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a multifaceted question. Um, the IOC the International Olympic Committee and the IFSC, the International Federation of Sport Climbing, kind of came together. And I think that from my understanding, there was definitely a pressure to include elements like speed, which is is a very digestible format of climbing to understand. You know, it's a head-to-head race. And having that aspect included was essential to the IOC because an audience can tune in and understand very immediately 
without the nuances of what sport climbing and bouldering include, who's winning. At the same time for Paris 2024, um, speed climbing will be separated from sport and lead, which is a step forward, uh, a significant step forward to more of the foundation of what climbing really feels and, and seems to be because you had a lot of like sport and boulder climbers having to take up this discipline of speed climbing, which was quite foreign to a lot of, especially climbers who climb on rock, like speed climbing up a homogulated route that is quite easy. It's just like a, a race to the top is pretty different from um, traditional forms of competition. And it's always kind of been in its own discipline. But I think as a professional climber and like with the luxury of looking back at um, what I feel was a successful competition career and saying like, I know that I don't want to compete in the Olympics. I felt like I had really turned a page on my competition career and been so focused on outdoors that I saw climbing's inclusion in the Olympics as just um, another way that climbing as a sport is expanding and touching more people and getting more people involved, which I think has a net positive on the actual sport itself. Um, if people, and, and surely like with the Olympics, as well as with Free Solo, the movie, um, I still get plenty of people asking me if I climb with a rope, even though I thought that the film did quite a good job of explaining that, you know, what Alex does is is pretty different from 99.9% of climbers. Um, and there's always going to be like a little bit of like a, you just see something and don't think about it and then classify it as something else. But overall, that film too had a net positive of like, bringing people more into the know of, of some degree of what climbing was, which I think is a good start. Yeah, absolutely. I think for, yeah, the smaller, not smaller sports, but any exposure is kind of good exposure, right? <laughs> yeah. Climbing, um, climbing is a niche sport. If you compare it, like, especially to basketball, football, soccer, like, um, it's still growing and, and it's crazy how many, um, people now know of climbing versus, even when I was in like middle school, high school, it was, uh, it's kind of something like, uh, off the beaten path that I always had to explain what climbing was. And I really <laughs> get tired of doing that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, this is a good thing. Yeah, because knowledge. Um, it's great. So, so you, you mentioned your expedition coming up is going to be for an, uh, a female first ascent. Um, and you've had at least, I think, over 30 uh, first female ascents. And I, I know I've, I've seen, you know, a lot of the posts you put up, you're a big advocate for, for female equality in the sport and in, in sports in general, not just rock climbing. So when you're kind of tackling a project like this, you know, let's, you know, you've had over 30 of them. Is there a point where you're starting to pick some out that, someone way back when said there's no way a female could do this and then you want to prove them wrong or are you just picking you know expeditions and and climbing that you just think are awesome and you like and you want to do that yeah that's a fair question i think that first female ascents are significant when they're significant ascents um and and that's where i think that that term comes into uh significance is if a climb 
is a really challenging climb that can then inspire other people to go out there and push their own limits or even see a climb as possible for women because climbing traditionally is a very male-dominated sport. I mean, it has its roots and a lot more men have historically climbed than women. And there still is a lot of um, misogyny in our sport. And climbing, I think, is a quite progressive sport overall. But um, it we face a lot of pushback. I mean, I definitely have in my career from being called a sellout for signing with corporate sponsors to, um, you know, being questioned for my success because I sign with a company and, and maybe I'm making more than some men and that makes them feel insecure. And um, I, I think that that space is still being changed and, and there's still work to be done with even on the women supporting women's side, like, for so long, it was the understanding that if one woman succeeded, then that would eradicate all um, ability for another woman to succeed. And it's almost like you just got to think of it as pulling up um, another seat at the table or, or even better as like building a new table and having a whole abundance of seats because climbing, um, it, it has for a long time gone through this scarcity model of very limited resources and money in the industry. And so everyone's competing over like a small amount of funds. And they think that that brings out um, a lot of insecurity and jealousy and, and therefore um, a lack of equality that can then come that athletes um, like myself and other women have to experience. And um, so I think that when it comes to like going after this ascent, for instance, it um, was really spurred by the idea of these uh, this team of three who went and did this climb. Um, it looked like a really epic adventure. And I saw their trailer to a film that unfortunately hasn't come out yet. But the climb is called Ryu. And it's this um, 514 uh, big wall climb that uh, is really challenging because it's a combination of traditional climbing and sport climbing brought together in this like epic environment of Picos de Europa, which is a national park in Northwest Spain. Um, I think you guys are the first people I've actually told the goal to, but um, you know, sometimes like you, you just keep like your goals a little bit more quiet too, because there's always the possibility of failure. And I think that the way that I see goal setting though, is like you, you have to put it out there and you find out whether you do it or not. Um, and it's, it's hard not to take things personally if you don't do them. And often it can be personal, like you're not in good enough shape or whatever it is, or maybe you just got a bad luck of weather. And um, so, yeah, that, that was a little bit of a ramble, but that's, I guess, how I see like first female ascents and the ambition behind this project. And do you see that improving in the time that you've been, uh, you know, a professional elite level climber in terms of that misogyny within the sports? Is that changing? Is it getting better? Or is it just, you know, what do you think needs to be done in terms of to properly address that, both from, I guess, your fellow athletes, maybe the organizations that oversee the sport itself? Where where can that be best addressed? Yeah, I think that climbing has definitely seen improvement and, and more quality. Um, I think that brands have a duty to support 
both men and women, but also diversity. And um, when I look at what brings me inspiration, it's when I see someone who I can relate to doing something really epic. And then I'm like, oh, wow, I could be like her. Or I could be like him. Like, whatever it is, I think just providing that level of inspiration um, at, across a multitude of, of different versions of what that looks like. Like through a lot of my career, I was told I don't look like a climber and it's kind of like, well, what does a climber look like? Like, well, that's a really open question. And I think that it's up to us as professional athletes to define that and in the same token to define the proper etiquette and way that we treat each other and a whole multitude of different things for what it means to be a good brand ambassador because that's really like at the heart and soul of um, you as a, a professional athlete, you're supposed to be representing um, your sport in the most positive light. And I'm so far from perfect and and um, I can name few people that I think are perfect, but um, I, I think there's always like room for growth, but climbing has grown a lot. And I think that uh, the whole outdoor industry is taking steps towards improving the environment and landscape of professional climbing. I guess one of the challenges too is like, the, in, is it a comfortable environment? This, I had such a delicate question to approach. Is it, a, is it an uncomfortable environment to be in as a, as a woman in terms of the actual setting in which it takes place, the kind of camping, rough living side of things, if you're then surrounded by a bunch of men, is that in and of itself at times an uncomfortable environment? Or is it accepting from the standpoint when you are on an expedition or you are out climbing that people are, for the most part, just welcoming of anyone else who's there and kind of understanding of you know differences that there might be? Yeah, I can only speak to my experiences um, because those are what I know. <laughs> And I've had really positive experiences in the outdoors and I am quite judicious over who I go on trips with. And maybe as I've aged, I've become um, even just more um, specific over who I will climb with because, you know, you're, you're placing your life into the other person's hand. You want to trust them and know that you're in good hands. Um, I've had like maybe one or two bad experiences well, maybe more than that, but you know, some some not so great experiences of just being questioned as a woman, and um, I've I've never been made to feel uncomfortable, thankfully, like in a in a um, unsafe environment or something like that. But um, he, like I I was on a climb once, and there's this like old crusty alpinist who is basically telling me that I should go to this area to go sport climb instead of like trying this, this, um, kind of like big wall climb. And I was like, I mean, I, I'm not telling you to go and like, um, work on your house cause you're past your prime, like get <laughs> off my back and let me do my thing, you know? Um, so I, I think that everyone's just, um, yeah, be, be more supportive of each other. Um, and something that I did, uh, focus on starting was, my production company is actually called Female Focused Adventures and um, starting to like take on more female-led expeditions. This one, I'm the um, leading an expedition with a team that I built of all women. Um, this, uh, I don't know if many of you guys as listeners have watched The Alpinist, but Brett Harrington, who was uh, with Marc-Andre for 
a long time and is in that movie and um, Matilda Suderland, uh, who is actually a friend who I grew up competing with from when I was like 10 years old or so. We've been good friends and that's the the team of our expedition. It's all women. And I think that there's something really fun about being um, a team of women because no one can say like, oh, well, maybe the guy did all the work because it's, it's like, no, actually like we're all shouldering it and, and we're charting the way and supporting each other. And I think that that's like um, a really cool thing. And, and I get inspired by both of them. Like um, my, it's not like I look at, um, sometimes I think it's, you can watch a male climber climb and think, well, yeah, it would be really cool if I was a guy and I could climb like that. When I watch women climb, I feel really inspired because I think, um, wow, if, if, um, she can show the ropes in that way, maybe I can too. Um, I just find a lot of inspiration there. That's great. I mean, that's really awesome to hear the, like a whole female production. That's 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 pretty awesome. Um, I guess kind of go a little lighter um, with your expeditions. You said that for the you know you're a little hesitant to eat freeze dried meals and things like that. So I, I know some people love you know kind of living off the outdoors and kind of having that lifestyle. But are you the type of person where if you had to choose, you'd rather like you said be at home, have that coffee maker right there, or or are you constantly? kind of want to getting in the van and going out and doing the adventures. You know, that's really funny that you say that because, um, I think I live in the juxtaposition. Um, I love really like kind of, you know, fancy luxurious experiences of, of comfortable hotel beds and stuff like that. And then I also love, um, getting down to the very simplistic form of things. And, uh, you know, just being out and having to just kind of be in the wilderness. Um, I, normally, I, I think I keep the two quite separate. It's like when I need to live on the side of a cliff, I'll live on the side of the cliff and I'll get a lot of enjoyment out of that. There's something about like the quieting of the chaos that happens when you're without service for a lot of time and you're just like out there with the people that you're with and you don't have comms and you're playing cards and you're cooking your meals and just making coffee is like a little bit of an effort. Like I think that it, it makes me appreciate the things in life that we take for granted on a day-to-day basis. Um, but at the same time in my daily life, like I'm not gonna, um, I'm not going to be a hypocrite to who I am. Like I, I do like living in a house and having, um, the things that I like to have and, um, going out to eat. And it, it's kind of like the way that I see the outdoors and the way that I see fashion too, is like, I've always been really into, um, you know, not denying that I'm like very feminine and I love nice things and I love fashion and I love different aspects of life. Like when I lived in New York City, it was that to the extreme because then I'd go out and be in the outdoors and and have a totally um, opposite experience. But I I still like that juxtaposition of life of like, I don't think that you have to choose Um, on an expedition. You don't have a choice. So I'll just like fully dive in. But when I have a choice of a, a van versus an Airbnb, like I'll choose an Airbnb. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will. Um, 
would choose a van, but that's just the way I am. And then speaking of the food element of it, I guess this is a good way to sort of segue into send bars. I guess the bar for those for listeners who are completely unfamiliar with the company, it's it's quite similar. Even if you're not a climber, I guess it's the type of bar you see like cyclists use oftentimes when they're preparing for like long weekend rides and they're putting their own food together that's like packed full of everything they need, but fairly easy to carry. What was the idea behind the kind of how did the bar itself come about? And then also, what do you think separates the bar from sort of other energy bars or nutritional bars that are currently on the market? Yeah, um, Sun Bars is fully my idea. I mean, I started making my own bars 10 years ago. Um, I've never uh, used or bought or endorsed another nutrition energy bar company because I've always found the bars on the market to be full of additives and preservatives and chemicals and sugars. Um, They've never made me feel good. And I actually just had like a blend tech in my kitchen that was a 3.3 horsepower engine blender. And I'd throw in like dates and nuts and greens um, and blend it up and send them off to like my friends um, and bring them on expedition. Like I'd roll them up into little balls and wrap them in tin foil and that'd be our expedition food. Um, and I, I got the name send bars because send and climbing is synonymous with like sending it, you're, you're achieving something at your highest ability and you're having this like blissful state. And, um, so I was like, all right, one day I want to start a company called send bars. So I got like the Instagram, Facebook and website. Um, and then, uh, two and a half years ago, I went through this massive hip reconstruction set of surgeries and finally actually had the time to like be like, all right, well, I need a, um, I'm not going to climb for nine months. So I need like something to get me through this and ride my purpose. And I had been kind of um, always like, it was always on my mind that one day I wanted to start this company. Um, and finally, I just had what was missing, which was time and my schedule to do it. So I built a team of uh, one of my good friends who went to Columbia as well, which is the university I went to, who was really focused in marketing. And I brought her onto the team as our CMO, um, got a woman. So there's four of us, a woman who has been an active part of a lot of Boulder based startup food brands um, who came on as our CFO. And then this woman who is another athlete, she was an Olympic luge athlete actually who was diagnosed with Lyme disease and forced into early retirement from sport and went down this holistic nutrition path of getting her culinary degree and nutrition degree. And so she came on as our recipe developer. And so um, it's really been, yeah, an all female founded brand. And we are based in Boulder, Colorado. And we, my, um, what, what differentiates us is something that I've always looked for in the bars that I make in my kitchen has been, it's like actually impossible to get fiber and greens on an expedition because you're not like lugging a head of lettuce up a, a cliff. Um, it would A, go bad and be like your climbing partners to be like, is this what you put in the backpack? Um, so I started using like, you know, freeze dried powders and vegetable blends and stuff like that. So we incorporated those into the bars, no added sugar. So all the sugar comes from dates, which has a really low glycemic index and doesn't feel like a gut bomb in your stomach. And 
than the bars. Um, a book that I, I read like probably eight years ago was by Heidi Skolnick called Nutrient Timing. And it's all about why you eat what you eat and when you eat it. And it does pertain to like female athletics, but also the cycling and adventure world uh, specifically. And so I've always thought like, why not make a bar with a purpose that has a specific timing related to the ingredients that are associated. So we started incorporating adaptogens um, and in our perform bar, we have a perform and a recovery bar right now. Our perform bar has lines made in cordyceps, which are like amazing for your immune system and endurance and energy. And then um, in our recovery bar, there's chaga and ashwagandha, which like chaga, for instance, is the highest concentration of antioxidants to any other food on the planet, which is pretty crazy and great for recovery. So there's different kind of bonus elements, the bars that really target specific ways to perform and recover. And so, yeah, my idea was like no preservatives, no additives, just whole food ingredients. So then when I can go on an expedition and think about eating freeze dried meals for dinner, then I'm like, at least I'm getting whole food ingredients and like real fiber and all of that to uh, be able to let my, my gut survive the task of time um, and feel good. So that was kind of, yeah, that's, that's the origin story. And um, we're five weeks old. We've focused our efforts online and it's just sendbars.com. And um, we're starting to dabble into a few retailers as we kind of grow, but as a small brand, it's definitely um, a, like there, there's just um, a, a calculation of when you go into retail, when you, when you start expanding past e-commerce and now um, e-commerce is kind of like where our focal point is. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're hitting home for me. I mean, I actually, the research I do in my lab is uh, looking at the role of the gut and energy homeostasis. And we do a lot with dietary fibers and people are always asking me, you know, how can I eat healthier? How can I be healthier? And I always tell them, you don't, you don't eat enough fiber. I don't know what you eat. I've never, yeah. I've never even met you before, but I know you're not eating enough fiber. So <laughs> that's kind of always what we've, I've always told everyone and that, you know, fiber is like the cure all. Unfortunately, there's a terrible podcast out, out right now about this woman who is false pushing like false fiber bars and stuff. I don't know if you've seen the, it's a new podcast out and it's, oh wow, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty, it's, not good for fiber in the sense that she was not going about it the right way, but that's a different story for a different day. But I thought what was really interesting is, is my, my father actually just had a to, uh, hip replacement surgery and he's just been sitting around the last three weeks watching Netflix. So I'm gonna have to tell him he's going to have to up his game and, and start his own company and stop, stop watching Peaky Blinders all day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I started a, uh, started a company and, and wrote a book and, my time off and now I'm like back to training and um kind of <laughs> finishing out the book and realizing the balance of of you know being a professional athlete and running a company is um you know when you go out of service for four to five weeks at a time like has a little bit of a of a, a negative uh, task at hand but uh we'll manage and you know it's all good so so I know that the hip surgeries were an enormous amount of of, uh, I would say setbacks, you know, I mean, you said it's about nine months you were off. What was that like coming back? How long did it take to you felt back to what you were before and how has it felt since, I guess? 
Yeah, it was a really arduous process. Um, yeah, I had a total of five surgeries over the span of a year and a half, um, two of which were 10 hour open hip surgeries where they went in and cut my pelvic bone in four places on each side, took out, like cut out the abs and shaved down the femur head and essentially restructured the entire pelvic bone, uh, held it in place by six inch screws. I had, um, six of them. And this is actually my ring is, uh, the screws that is kind of hard to see on zoom, but I popped in some pink sapphires. So like pink is my favorite color. And then they're a stone of resilience. Um, and anyways, yeah, it's, it's, I still do PT twice a week and, um, body work and it's been a process, but it's been pretty incredible to learn about what the body is capable of and back to nutrition. Like nutrition played a huge role in my recovery and you get to a point kind of like on an expedition where, um, your whole life is, is like turned upside down and you have to control what you can control and figure out the rest. So when I was in recovery, really focused on like, what mental game can I focus on? What nutrition can I focus on? How can I really optimize my ability to possibly come back? Because before my set of surgeries, like I had, I didn't know any professional rock climber that had gone through these surgeries. Um, and I had no precedence. And I was even told by um, some people, like including a, a surgeon that I did meet, I actually had an amazing surgeon that I worked with who is a former Red Bull athlete who's coming over for dinner tonight, um, he, Dr. Omer Maidan. And um, anyways, I, I had people left and right tell me I'd never come back to high-level sport again after this set of surgeries. So I didn't know what to think. I just knew that it would be like putting my head down and, and figuring it out and focusing on, you know, what I could do. Um, and what I have experienced is like, before the surgeries, it, what was happening was my femur head was essentially popping out of place. And so it was causing a lot of instability in my lower body. And now that I've had the surgeries and corrected it, um, the other option was a hip replacement, but that would be, it, it wouldn't really hold the task of time or the test of time with uh, being a professional rock climber where climbing is like super uh, hip focused. What was ironic of all of this is like, I'm always like, climbing's all on your hips. And then I went and had to have both my hips, you know, fully broken. Um, but now I do have stability and, and strength in new ways. It's just been changing my style of climbing and like learning a new way to move my body, which has been, um, I have ups and downs and I, I do feel really good and strong right now, which is pretty incredible. Cause I'm like able to start, uh, planning this big expedition that, is like one of the hardest climbs that I've ever gone after achieving. Um, and so I do feel like I'm back and charging and, and able to be charging in new ways. Like when I came back to lifting, um, I could lift more at base level start than I could before the surgeries because I actually had hips that were like foundationally set.
It's it's a, a remarkable story. Uh, Frank will be well aware. I'm pretty like passionate about the story of, I mean, there might be some similarities in terms of the, the details, but Andy Murray's hip surgery and his recovery and return to playing professional tennis, which I just find to be yeah. extraordinary. And similarly, like to go through all of that and to get yourself back to a level where you're able to do something at an elite level is just, I think, incredible. I think most people listening probably unable to even fathom the surgeries themselves let alone the recovery process necessary to get anywhere back to the level you were beforehand. Well, injuries give us new senses of motivation and and new ways to be excited about training because it's a new challenge. So in some ways, I think that you can come back a lot stronger from injuries and with a better head and better appreciation of what the body is capable of. It is. That is such a good point too, because I think, you know, in the times that I was, an athlete in in college and things like that, whenever we would get injuries, you'd go to physical therapy and you'd be doing exercises that you'd never done before. And then you started doing them and realized that once you got past the injury and you kept doing them, that there was actually a benefit that you never realized before. And and you're like, oh, wow, how had I done this, you know, for the last five years, imagine how much stronger this aspect of my game would have been or that aspect. So it's, it is true. I mean, you you are learning things through the injuries and, and getting stronger because of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd agree with that. And obviously, I want to be mindful of your time. So for certainly for me, this is my final question, but it's an area of, it's going to be maybe not easy for you to answer in the, the sort of quickest way possible necessarily. But your activism is obviously another major part of how either people might know you or, or a large part of what you do. I think it's interesting, certainly from the environmental standpoint, I guess in many ways, climbers and your the time you spend in the outdoors and in nature maybe gives you a greater level of awareness of the the kind of changes that are going on. And and you spoke about even in the upcoming expedition, the impact that perhaps warm summers or climate change are having on, you know, levels of snow in certain regions. If you could speak about sort of, I guess, your involvement in activism and the causes you're particularly passionate about, um, and maybe again, also some ways that people can sort of find out more information about those those particular causes. Yeah, I mean, being an outdoor athlete, it's hard not to care about the environment. And that was a pretty natural inclusion into um, what I feel my duty as an athlete is, is getting more people aware of what we're experiencing in real live time in the wilderness places that we experience and we travel to and the changing weather patterns have extreme consequences on um, the environment and the places that we go to and the as extreme sport athletes really pushing the limit of what's possible when the weather patterns are so erratic it really affects our safety level in the sport Um, and I, I always think of if you go out on a camping trip or you go out on a hike with your family or friends, it, um, often results in a really memorable experience that in my experience has led you to, has led me to feel more connected to the places that I recreate. And so I think that that's normally like the first step and, and part of what I see, in climbing is getting more people outdoors because the more people who get outdoors is like the more you care about protecting the outdoor spaces. Um, 
And so I do work with various nonprofits like Protect Our Winters and Access Fund and American Alpine Club that have these objectives that that also involve going to Capitol Hill and lobbying with politicians and government towards um, pushing legislation, which actually this week, like the Inflation Act that just went through and is set to go through the House is probably the most historically positive climate change legislation act that's actually gone through the Senate, which is pretty amazing. I mean, you can read about it um, on online and, and read the brief on the bill, but essentially it puts a large injection into renewable energy and all of these incredible aspects that will go towards lowering our carbon emission. Um, and, and then as a part of my career too, it's like working with organizations that use sport to empower people that have less, um, opportunity and less ability to go out and like participate in organized sport activities. So like right to play is an organization I've worked with since 2008 and up to sports. Um, I'm on the board of the women's sports foundation and also ascend athletics and I just find that like, obviously it's biased, but sport has really changed my life in a super positive way. Like it's given me this amazing sense of purpose and direction and ability to set goals and be determined and, and feel that sense of satisfaction uh, when you achieve something, but also like know how to deal with failure. And I think that that trickles into all aspects of life, like from business life to um, just the ability to be a well-rounded human is um, for me, I've really benefited from the lessons of sports. So that's been, um, yeah, like my, my quote unquote causes or things that I really care about. Um, I think that they're basic, uh, human causes like creating equality and protecting our planet. And it's a shame that sometimes protecting our planet can be like a partisan issue because I think that we all are here and we're all looking towards our future generations being able to enjoy what we enjoy and even our current generation, not, um, you know, going through massive like avalanche danger and rockfall and all of these um, increased dangers because of climate change. So um, I feel very passionate about that. And if there's something that I can leave from my career as an athlete, like I would hope that it comes from the advocacy work more than um, the selfish pursuit of just going and climbing rocks. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, that that's really what's fun for me, but it's not what moves the needle on the the planet becoming a better place. I guess Eddie's going to ask all the really hard questions and, and I, I have to bring back the levity a little bit. So I'll, I'll end on... Uh, you know, you, you've said it before, you're a Red Bull athlete. And, you know, whenever people think of, you know, Red Bull and in, in sports or Red Bull athletes, it kind of has like that badass stamp to it, you know. And so so what's it like being a Red Bull athlete? How, you know, is it as cool as it sounds? You know, it, <laughs> how's that go? Yeah, no, it is. It is as cool as it sounds, honestly. Um, something that I've really enjoyed in the brand is the way that the brand really fosters a sense of community amidst the athletes. And that's from like athlete focused team camps where um, we went to one in like Austin where we stayed on um, Willie Nelson's ranch and like cool airstreams. And yeah, we, we did a lot of like different sports and bonding activities. And 
Then there is also a performance under pressure camp where um, we just get to work with like these amazing uh, people that are at the top of their fields and what they do, like these Cirque du Soleil trainers who worked on our mental performance and ability to control our emotions to um, working with like this top Navy SEAL veteran who um, brought us through like a high risk situation where we had to like um, navigate through a field without exploding what were like fireworks um, if you stepped on them or something. And so a lot of like out of the box training and resources that Red Bull really focuses in on. And um, I guess lastly, like when I was diagnosed with hip dysplasia and knew that I was looking down the barrel of all these surgeries, Red Bull lined me up with like a sports psychologist to work with and a nutritionist and a team of P- of uh, PTs. So that, that was like pretty above and beyond for a brand to actually provide for support for an athlete. And it was, it's been a pretty incredible experience. I actually, I signed with Red Bull when I was a freshman in college. Uh, that's awesome. And so that's, <laughs> yeah. um, it's been an awesome road. No, that's, I mean, that sounds awesome. We have to see if we can be a Red Bull sponsored podcast. Maybe we can join in. and <laughs> Extreme podcasting. Yeah. We can train in I'll, I'll throw you off a cliff. I'll throw you off a cliff, Frank, and we can see if they'll, they'll get involved. That'll work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate you guys having me on the show, and I can't wait to hear this. No, it's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, thank you, you so know, much. Really appreciate very it. Generous with your time as well. But yes, it's been wonderful speaking to you on so many different topics, and obviously we wish you the best of luck with the upcoming expedition. Yeah.